an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a locomotive that once worked the docks on the Seattle waterfront is coming home. This smaller locomotive that is more significant to Washington state history was only the second diesel locomotive on the Northern Pacific. And then, from the archives, Kirkland's hidden heavy metal history. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And it's Friday when our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. You can think of him as your dashboard navigator to the past. This week, (laughs) he will take us to an old-school service station in eastern Washington with a very specific claim to fame. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, and we've talked about old service stations here before. I love roadside architecture and American car culture. And I heard recently from a guy named Dan Ward in College Place. It's over by Walla Walla. He believes his family-owned business is, quote, the oldest continuously operating old-school, true, full-service service station in the Pacific Northwest, operating at the same location by the same family. Now, that's quite a mouthful, but I think it's pretty clear. Now, College Place is named for what was originally Walla Walla College and now a university. It's a small Seventh-day Adventist institution founded in 1892, and the station is called Beeline. Now, Beeline is an old brand name of gas, mostly in the mountain states. It died off a long time ago. The station's on College Avenue, three blocks from the university. Now, Dan Ward owns the station now, but his late mom and dad, Carol and Ben, founded it back in 1958 and ran it together. And it's still in business 63 years later at the same location in the original building, all the full-service amenities and certified mechanics on duty. It's not You're not going to find a mini-mart on the premises. And for the customers who still want it, they'll pump gas, they'll wash windows, even check the oil and tires. Now, Dan began working at the station as a little kid back in the 60s. He says College Place was like Mayberry in those days. His dad was like Andy. The station was like Floyd's Barbershop. He told me about how his dad's friends would show up for a daily ritual that involved chewing the fat and lagging, which is a form of pitching pennies to determine who would pay for the soda pop. At about 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, some of his cronies would start showing up out of nowhere. And, you know, it's a slow town, slow pace, and that was his style, you know, that that type of thing. But they'd come up and they'd uh, lag for soda pop. And, of course, pop is 10, 15 cents a a copy, you know, in their pop machine there. And they'd draw tape on the line. Everybody would lag from behind this deal. And then this this other tape and whoever got the closest to it or the farthest. And then whoever lost bought the pop for everybody. And you're talking to Dan, who owns the station now and has a manager running it. You get the sense his dad was the heart and soul of the business and the reason why it never really changed. He just loved what he did and never really retired. They also managed to hang on to that Beeline name. There were once hundreds, if not thousands, of those stations in the Mountain West. The one in College Place is now the only Beeline left. And Dan's in the middle of a renovation, kind of re-embracing that Beeline brand with all sorts of vintage equipment and stuff. And we'll have photos of that Beeline station at My Northwest. But I wonder if there might be similar stations around Washington. If there are, I'd sure like to know about it. You know, send me a text, uh, 888-973-5476, and... Uh, Check out our photos at My Northwest a little bit later on this morning. Well, there's the old uh, shell station in Issaquah. You've seen that one, right? I've seen that one, but it's, that one's not even operating. Isn't that just sort of a museum display? This one's actually know. running. It's still in business. And, oh, one other thing. The average price of gasoline in 1958 was $0.30. Cents, yes. Which adjusted for inflation would be about 2 bucks nowadays. Yeah. Tell me about it. 
<laughs> Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle. And time for Felix Spinell. Hey, I don't usually associate the theme music with Felix Pinnell. don't know what kind of dancer he is, but uh, we're playing it anyway because it's Soul Train, and we're talking about trains at a museum in Snoqualmie's in the middle of a transaction that will send a 1951 diesel engine from their collection back to its original home in Nevada and bring a 1940 locomotive from Longview back to its original home here in King County. Our resident historian Felix Pinnell says all aboard of that kind of local railroad history. And he's brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Good morning, David. On the day after the election, of course, this is an election-related story because good politicians make the trains run on time. Yes. Um, now, it's all happening right now at the Northwest Railway Museum in Snoqualmie. They're a nonprofit group founded way back in 1957 as a volunteer group called the Puget Sound Railway Historical Association. Now, they've grown tremendously and professionalized. Had that wonderful restored depot right in the town of Suquamish, and then a mile or so away, they have a restoration center and a train shed. It's a great place to visit. It's open to the public. And it was almost 20 years ago that the first part of this locomotive trade became a gleam in the eye of Northwest Railway Museum Director Richard Anderson. Now, what's being sent into the Nevada Northern Railway Foundation in Ely, Nevada, on a big truck, is a six-axle road switcher built by the American Locomotive Company in Schenectady, New York, back in 1951. And it was delivered that same year to the Nevada Northern Railway, where it was used for copper ore, and where it was known as the 201. It was donated to the museum in Snoqualmie back in 1983, and they used it for years to haul their excursion trains. But now it's truly going home to where it originally served for 30 years. Now, what the Northwest Railway Museum gets as part of this deal was also built in New York and was delivered in 1940 to the Northern Pacific in Seattle. Part of this whole transaction is this smaller locomotive that is more significant to Washington state history moving up to the museum here uh, it's it's also built by the American Locomotive Company, or ALCO for short, but was delivered here in February or March of 1940. It was only the second diesel locomotive on the Northern Pacific, and it uh, switched the docks along the Seattle waterfront, and then later was sold to the Walla Walla Valley Railway in Walla Walla so they could shut down their electric railway. How sad is that, right? it would be more likely today that we would be shutting down the diesel train to put in the electric railway. So the locomotive coming to Suquamish was built in 1940. It's known as the 125. It's 43 feet long and weighs about 200,000 pounds. It was actually in service at the Port of Longview as recently as 2004, when it was 64 years old, which is a pretty cool thing. Now, along with having a direct local connection, a diesel locomotive back in 1940, which was still the golden age of steam trains, well, that was a pretty radical thing. I think it is reasonable to say that in 1940, a diesel was considered experimental. Uh, there was a lot of compelling evidence that this was the future, but it was uh, still something that was not necessarily accepted by everyone. One thing, and we'll have photos in my Northwest, uh, the diesel locomotives were built for low-speed operations, you know, switching boxcars in the rail yard and assembling big freight trains. So while they aren't these gorgeous, streamlined, and romanticized works of art, they are an important part of railroad history in the early diesel era. The 201, which is the 70-year-old diesel locomotive headed back to Nevada, is also pretty big. Well, a locomotive is approximately 65 feet long and 14 feet high. But the real kicker is that it weighs something in the neighborhood of 320,000 pounds. So we just don't we, we just don't have highways that are norm, you know, normally built to carry that sort of mass. 
So this massive truck is coming here in components. They don't even operate this truck normally by itself on the highway. It's coming here on three semi-trailers and is being reassembled here in Snoqualmie. And that uh, special truck will carry uh, the 201 back to Nevada. Now, Mark Bassett is the president of the Nevada Northern Railway Foundation. He drove up from Nevada and he's in Snoqualmie to work alongside Richard Anderson as the big cranes and the big trailers get the job done. And he's pretty excited to see a decade of planning come together. November 3rd is when we're going to do the great switcheroo. Uh, the, <laughs> yes, the, the cranes are there, the trailer is there, and we plan to load locomotive 201 first and uh, get it on the trailer and have it clear the track. And then once that is done, the other locomotive that's replacing it is already there on a trailer from its trip up from Longview. And then the cranes will pick it up and put it back on the rails so it's at its new home, too. Mark Bassett's going to be driving back to Eli, Nevada as part of the convoy for the 855-mile trip, which will be done in the overnight hours. Now, as cool as an old locomotive or caboose is sitting along the tracks, it takes a serious approach to fundraising and smart management to make sure those giant artifacts don't simply rust away. And you might remember 30 years ago, if you ever drove through Snoqualmie back then, when much of the Northwest Railway Museum's collection was parked on the tracks in Snoqualmie, and in some ways almost doing just that, rusting away. Uh, Richard Anderson's been on the job for about 25 years, and I think he deserves a lot of the credit for managing that collection trading some things away, you know, getting probably scrapping some things, marshaling the volunteers and donors and other resources to build a real first-class operation that's truly a community asset up there in Snoqualmie. Now, last month, we visited the Pacific Northwest Railroad Archive in Burien. The Northwest Railway Museum works closely with those guys, and their work truly complements each other. You know, the documents and photos are critically important, of course, but Richard Anderson believes it's also worth going to great lengths to devote resources to the care of big, heavy train cars and locomotives. There's something that uh, that an artifact does that a photograph can never do. There's the, the seeing is believing uh, when uh, you're standing on the floor of the exhibit hall and this locomotive is towering above you more than 14 feet. That experience just can't be conveyed with a photograph or a movie for that matter. Uh, these are tangible examples of uh, of our collective history and demonstrate how we move from uh, effectively uh, walking on foot or uh, or or traveling in uh, horse conveyances to uh, to the modern transportation system we have today. And Richard Anderson says that the locomotive from Longview, which they call the one twenty five, should be on public display sometime in the next few weeks, you know after the big switcheroo happens today. And uh, meanwhile, the Northwest Railway Museum has steam trains operating this weekend and lots of cool stuff to look at, and it's almost time for their amazing Santa train to start up again. Uh, and we have lots of information. That we'll have some stuff at My Northwest, and their website is great, trainmuseum.org. So, so they have a, a Santa deal. train. I mean, have, you, have you ever taken you take your kids on the Santa train up I have there? not taken the Santa train, no. Oh, man, it's worth it. Take the grandkids up there. It's just they, they sing Christmas carols. They hand out hot cocoa. So this is, a, this is a, an old locomotive that's, that still works? The one that's coming up from Longview? Well, which well, the Santa Train oh. or that one. I was going to ask oh, about have, that, they have, that they, one, too. They've been operating locomotives. They have stuff that works all the time. They've been running train rides up there for the public for years. It's a, it's a cool yeah. little museum right there in Snoqualmie, and it's, the stuff actually works, and they take good care of it, and they restore old stuff, and it's just Excellent. this amazing glimpse into railroad history. Yeah, but the one that's headed here is not going to come under its own power. It, it's not operating. Anymore. It has to come by truck. Yeah, it's yeah. so big, and the, it's a, the railroad museum is landlocked. It's not connected to a railroad that could get it out to the regular rail line, so they have to bring it by truck. So 
Felix Bunnell, all the pictures at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, when an old supermarket in Kirkland was torn down, a piece of heavy metal history was lost, too. Now emerging from the crypt deep beneath the Bonneville Broadcast Center, wearing his big hair this morning is resident historian Felix Spinell. Wait a minute, gonna... Chris, Chris, turn off your cigarette lighter, please. Come on, put it down. <laughs> it's going it's to take us all the way Not back. Not to this to, song. Yeah. All the way back to 1981. It's disconcerting when you do history segments uh, for which uh, I was alive to witness. Uh, <laughs> you, might, you might have actually covered this for Cairo. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I, let's see, 1981. I'd been here three years. Chris was playing, what, Little League? Colleen yeah. was not even a gleam in anybody's <laughs> eye. <laughs> True. And uh, all over Kirkland, this small club was advertising live music for the first time. So what's this all yeah. about? Well, that was Def Leppard playing. Def Leppard, oh, okay. probably the, and Chris can back me up on this, probably the biggest heavy metal band of the 1980s. They sold something like, I think, 4 billion records or yeah. something like that. Some would question whether they're heavy metal, but we're not going to get into that. Oh, great. Okay, anyway, well, you know, we are supposed to do a story about the Seahawks this week, but, you know, something bad happened. And I was in Kirkland, <laughs> where I often go and I'm out of story ideas, and I stumbled across this old grocery store that was built back in the 50s. And I thought, God, that building is still standing. I thought that had been torn down years ago. I remember that it had a little bit of history to it because back in the early 80s, after it had closed, they made it a, an arcade called the End Zone. I knew that something had happened in the music industry, right, in this big cavernous building. First place I ever saw Donkey Kong back in 1980. Yeah. It was just kind of a— That I remember. Yeah, kind of a hangout in downtown Kirkland. And I called this track down this guy named Brent Christensen. He used to hang out at the End Zone as well. And he, had a, he was a roadie for a local heavy metal band called Myth. And Brent also thought, you know, they should put a stage in this big, empty grocery store. It's got nice high ceilings, unlike the Lake Hills Roller Rink, where they also have heavy metal bands. This has got a big, tall rock star ceiling because it's an old grocery store. And so they let him build a stage there. And then he said, hey, I've got this band that could play here, too. I'm a roadie for this band called Myth. Let's have Myth play there. And then, for some reason, nobody's clear why this happened, but Def Leppard was in town. They played a show at the Moore Theater. They didn't have to be in Portland for another four days, so they had three or four days here to kill. And they arranged this meet and greet. Def Leppard, this big up-and-coming metal band, is going to yeah. go to Kirkland to this dumpy old grocery store <laughs> with a bunch of rotten old pinball machines and video games in this plywood stage and meet the fans. And so um, Brent said, okay, Myth's going to play. And they said, okay, they said yes to the stage, so yes, you, Myth can play there. So Brent was backstage waiting with Myth to go on. And there's a spoiler alert because Myth had a very soon-to-be-very-famous lead singer. But here's Brent describing what happened backstage as they waited for Def Leppard to show up. Uh, it was just like the backstage of a grocery store. It was great <laughs> without all the groceries in it. <laughs> there was a few sawhorses. We, would, we had just got done building the stage for this whole thing. That's what Pete Willis from Def Leppard was leaning on and sitting against with his little pointed boots, and he was just pissed that he was <laughs> having to be there to do this. <laughs> so these young British rockers are all like 21 or 22, and this one guy's angry. He felt like he's just been sort of herded onto the bus and dragged to this little suburban club. Mm -hmm. So a few hundred people showed up. This has sort of gone viral via radio, the way things used to go viral via radio back in the early 80s. Myth played their four songs, and Def Leppard really liked them. So here's a big thing. The lead singer of Myth is a guy named Jeff Tate. And within a year... Jeff is part of a band called The Mob that goes on to become Queensryche, which sells more than 20 million records. And Queensryche has had their own legal troubles lately, and they've split up, and Jeff's got his own separate band. 
Two of the guys who play in Jeff's current band, Operation Mindcrime, they played at this myth show back in Kirkland in November of 1981. So anyway, talking to Brent, who I really like, he was a fun guy. I get the sense he's not that sentimental. And I was trying to kind of build up like, you know, should we go down there and chain ourselves to the bulldozers? You know, isn't, isn't this Kirkland's equivalent of the Cavern Club in Liverpool? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 You could call it that. I wish I had lasted a lot longer and, and really became, you know, something that everybody got to play. Which would be cool. So he's not that sentimental about the building, but I thought, you know, heavy metal is known for their groupies, right? And there's different communities around the around Puget Sound had different different qualities. And I said, was there anything special about the Kirkland variety of, of heavy metal groupie? Did, did they have a defining trait? And he said, yeah, they did in one very specific way. <laughs> they weren't like the, the Linwood one. <laughs> the, the big, big hair Linwood one. <laughs> so, so no, I'm least... a Linwoodite. What does that <laughs> yeah, mean? Can yeah. you well, explain that? We'll have to go off air and talk about that. But quick update, that property sold about two years ago for $12 million. Uh-huh. Um, sometime before May, it's going to be torn down. Um, they're going to put up a five-story building with, surprise, surprise, condos and ground floor retail. So, but that's this little spot in local history where nobody knew this had happened. We have a full story at mynorthwest.com. There's some pictures of the old grocery Shouldn't store. Shouldn't there at stuff. least be a plaque there and some memorial beer stains on the floor? Well, if you ask Brent, he says no because he's not that sentimental about no. it. But I, I think there should be some recognition of the fact that Kirkland played this very bizarre role in local heavy metal history. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for me.